Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. This morning, I wanted to turn to another very familiar passage, the, par- the story of the Good Samaritan. Because another way Messiah is going to build his body, and we need to, I think, hear this very, very clearly, is by transforming our lives to be different kinds of people than we might otherwise be. It's not enough just to know the truth. We have to become a certain kind of people. And so we need to be a prayerful people, we need to be a sowing type of people, but we also need to be a kind of people who are extremely generous in our lives. Now, that's not to say, oh, I just give away everything and I become a a pauper on the street. That's not what I'm talking about. But we need to have a generous heart, a wise heart, to be sure, wise as serpents, harmless as doves, but we need to be generous like our Lord is generous. At least we need to be pursuing that. So now take a look at this story that he tells. We're told in chapter 10 of Luke, verse 25, and behold, and by the way, Luke is the only one that records this. He says, behold, a lawyer stood up to him, a scribe. You know, there are different levels of scribes. There were scribes that were skilled in the art of transcribing the record. There were scribes that were great at teaching the language. There were scribes that were focused on the understanding, the dissemination, and the investigation of the Word of God. And so when it says this, a lawyer stood up, we're not just supposed to be thinking of, you know, these guys in the courts that are carrying briefcases. He's talking about a legal authority, one who knows the Mosaic law inside and out. This is his shtick so to speak. And so this particular scribe who focused his attention on the understanding of the law of the Lord, he uh, stood up to put Yeshua to the test. Now, the moment we read the word test, we generally think of this in a fairly negative context, but it need not be understood that way. Rabbis oftentimes tested each other by challenging their understanding. That's how I think it's meant here. I don't think he's trying to fool or catch Yeshua in a, in a problem, but he is trying to understand more clearly by way of discussion, debate, and argument, an idea or at least an answer to the question, how can one inherit eternal life? That, of course, is the $64,000 in our day and age, $64 million question, isn't it? That's the question. How do we inherit eternal life? I was really struck, and listen, I'm not promoting any particular candidate, but I got to tell you, I was watching the Republican uh, interaction. Any of you guys watch that? You know, is it just me? 
you know, just a handful of us, you know. I guess it is just the few of us, you know, that drive everybody else crazy. My wife comes in the room, will you turn that off already? How many times do you have to hear it? It's just the second hour. It's just the second repeat, you know. I mean, I, I had to catch the first one, you know, and, and she's off reading her uh, novels or the Bible, and I'm here watching Fox News, you know. And, you know, just drive her crazy. Sometimes I drive myself crazy. But I was watching the debate. And you know what really struck me was Rubio's comments. I don't know if you heard it or not. But uh, he made two comments. One was with regard to his record in uh, in Florida. And they said, you know, at Time magazine, they had you on the cover of Time, and they said the savior of Florida, uh, Marco Rubio. And his comment was, I am not a savior. There is only one savior, and his name is Jesus Christ, who died for my sins and by which I can enter eternal life. I said, what? You know? I mean, he could have just said, look, I'm really no savior. I'm just another human being like you doing a hard day's work, trying to help out what's going on in Florida. But no, I am not the savior. There's only one savior. And then later in the same debate, which also struck me, was they were talking about one's values. And he was talking about the foundation blocks upon which the United States was formed, which was the Judeo-Christian tradition. And he said, I am committed to the Judeo-Christian religion, the Judeo, excuse me, Judeo-Christian tradition. Not because I think it's clearer or best or this or that, because it's a reflection of my life. And what he said was, I'm not interested, listen to this, I'm not interested in just living to be 70 or 80 years old. I'm living for eternal life. And one day I'm going to stand before God. And I thought, holy crow. You know, now, was he just courting the evangelical vote? I don't know. But what I'm telling you is that was a wonderful statement for people to hear. And that's what this man is asking Yeshua. We're only here for a certain amount of time. I've invested myself in probably the most important thing I can invest myself in, the word of God, the law of Moses. And I have this question, how can I inherit eternal life? You would think he would know. You would think he would say, if I just do the commandments, 613 of them, I'll inherit eternal life. But he says to Yeshua, what must I do? What must a person do to inherit eternal life? Now, look at this. He says, teacher, what shall I do? Now, this is really important in the Greek. Um, You know, I don't like to try to point out a lot of these Greek technicalities, but in this instance, this is very critical because he uses the Greek tense, which is known as the aorist tense. The aorist tense, and the aorist tense in Greek means a point in which something is done that has eternal consequences or ongoing consequences. We don't have anything like that in the English language. But Greek is very technical, and so it has this one form in which it has this point in time that will have the the results. In other words, he's saying, what one thing can I do that will grant me eternal life? What's the one thing? that I need to do. He's not saying the more important thing, but what's the one activity, the one action that I need to do? And look what Yeshua says. He said, what is written? He's asking him a question. It's a very Jewish thing, right? Nobody wants to answer the question. Everybody wants to ask questions, you know? So he says, so what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And the scribe answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.4, which we read every Shabbat. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, and he said to him, uh, the scribe says, you have answered correctly. Um, Or I should say, Yeshua says, you have answered correctly. He says, do this and you will live. There he quotes Leviticus 18.5. Do this and you will live. The live here means for eternal life. Well, here's what's interesting. The question was in the aorist tense. What one thing must I do? And Yeshua answers in an imperative. It's a command. And it's in the present tense. In other words, you need to continually love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And continually Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no one thing, if you're asking on the basis of what it is you must do, what it is we must do to inherit eternal life by our own merit, by our own actions, there is no one thing you can do that will have eternal consequences. There is something you need to continually do, ongoingly do, repeatedly do in order to inherit eternal life. Now, with that, the scribe must have thought, have I been able to do that? Has anyone ever been able to continually, ongoingly, never failingly love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might, with all their strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, your enemies who are your neighbors, as well as your friends, your family, as well as your foes. Is there anyone who could ongoingly, continually, perpetually do that and never fail? The scribe must have been thinking that. Now, he might have thought, okay, in his pride, in his arrogance, in his blindness, he might have said, I have loved God that way. He might have thought that, but he knows He has not loved his neighbor like that. He knows that because when Yeshua gives him the story of the good Samaritan, how does he answer the question, which one was his neighbor? And what does the man say? The Samaritan. Oh, no, he would never utter the Samaritan. He rather says, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. And that's because the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along very well. In fact, so much so that one of the worst insults you could heap on a person is to call them, you Samaritan, you. In fact, one of the interesting passages, you could check it out, John chapter 6, I think it is verse 48, when they want to insult Yeshua, They say, you are a Samaritan, and, to make it really bad, you have a demon, you know. It's not enough just to say you have a demon. we got to add the other, you're a Samaritan too, buddy, you know. And so when the scribe asks Yeshua this question, he knows he hasn't done this with respect to his neighbor. 
So Yeshua tells the story. We know the story well, don't we? And in that story, he says that there was a man. doesn't tell us he's a Jew, by the way, if you look carefully. He just says there was a man. And by the way, he says there was a certain man. Some would say this is a parable. I don't know. He says there was a certain man that did this. Maybe it is a parable, but he never calls it that. Maybe he made it up, and that's possible. But maybe it really happened. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if it really happened. But it would be an exception, not a rule. And so he tells us that there was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho on the road that leads from Jerusalem. Now, that road, and that we've, I've been on it numerous times, it's a road that's about 17 miles long. It starts 3,000 feet above sea level in Jerusalem, and it lands down at the Dead Sea 1,500 feet below sea level, lowest place in the world. 17 miles, you're going to go over 4,500 feet. That's an incredible distance, not just 17 miles, but it's an incredible distance this way. Thinking of that, by the way, you remember when Joshua moved his troops, they chased the enemy all night. And then by the time they get up all, you know, 17 miles going from Jericho all the way up toward Jerusalem, you would think Joshua would pray, listen, bring the sun down so that we can get some rest. No, he prays, keep the sun up so we can keep going. The only way that they were able to do that was by God somehow supernaturally strengthening them to do it. But in this instance, and that road, by the way, in the book of Joshua is called the Pass of Adumim. It comes from the Hebrew word Adam, which is the word for blood. It means it's the bloody pass. And the reason it was a bloody pass is because there were always a lot of criminals and robbers, and they were always taking advantage of the innocent that would travel this stretch. There are all kind of twists and turns and ravines, and it wouldn't be surprising if a robber or a group of robbers caught you and you were stuck. Now, this certain man got stuck, got taken over by a group of robbers, such as I've described. And when they took him over, it says that, first of all, they stripped him of everything. So all his belongings are gone. Perhaps all of his clothes are taken from him. And he's just there naked. And then it says they beat him. The Greek word says they pummeled him. In other words, they beat him to a pulp. They left him for dead. At least half dead is the term Yeshua says. That is, he was lying on the side of the road, left half dead. They took everything from him. And by chance, it says, without any forewarning, without any plan, these people don't come with the knowledge that this individual is in need and therefore they've come for him. Just by chance, they happen to travel down this road. First of all, a priest coming from Jerusalem, perhaps after serving. That's why he's called a priest in distinction from the Levites. The priests were Levites and Levites were priests. But the Levites were broken up into 24 courses by David the king. And so when it was your course to serve, you were a priest on duty. And you'll remember when Zechariah lit the altar of incense, it was during his course of duty. He served as a priest. But when he was off duty, he was not a priest. He was a Levite. 
And so this man came from Jerusalem after serving as a priest headed to Jericho, which was a major place of refuge for the Levites, interestingly enough, for the priestly class. And on his way, he comes across this man. And the text says he walked away from him. In fact, in the Greek, it says he walked opposite from where the person was. So he comes down the road, sees him and says, I'm not going there, crosses the road to the other side and passes him. Now, we might speculate as to why he did that. But it doesn't matter. He did it. And whatever the reason, he lacked compassion and generosity. But then another man comes. This time, it's not a priest on duty, but simply a Levite. And I think the reason why Yeshua is telling us these are priests is because these are religious people. These are just not prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. These are individuals who are committed to the law of the Lord, not merely in an abstract way, but in a very tangible way, as they were worship leaders. They would bring people into the presence of God. They were doing worshipful kinds of stuff, not merely academic kinds of stuff like the scribes who might sit in their classrooms and discuss with their students what they're learning. These were guys that were, that were meant to bring people into the presence of God to experience him, to encounter him, to worship him. And when the Levite sees him, he too, it says, walked on the opposite way. But then here comes a Samaritan an arch enemy of the Jewish people. So we assume he is a Jew that is lying on the ground. And this is not a man of any spiritual significance, at least as far as we could tell as Jews from an external point of view. But remember what Yeshua said, we're to love with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. It's very easy to worship God, maybe not so easy, for some of us, but with our hands raised or with our feet moving in dance, although I'm so glad Todd did not attempt it this morning. Actually, I'm not very glad about that. But we can worship God with smiles, with our voices, with our hands raised, with our hands down, with our feet moving. But the important thing is, are we loving him and worshiping with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength? Remember what Yeshua said, that the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit as well as in truth. These Levites might have been worshiping with the external veneer, but their hearts were far from him. And this Samaritan might not have had all the religious symbolism attached to him or all the traditions connected to him, but his heart was connected to the things of God. He valued people above his own self-interest. You know, it was Martin Luther King, by the way, on the day that he was assassinated and was preaching, I think it was in Memphis, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, he had part of his message was on the Good Samaritan. And he was asked the question, why would you come to Memphis? Do you know why he went to Memphis? Because the garbage workers were being taken advantage of by their employees. He didn't go there to run for president. (laughs) He didn't go there to defend the uh, Wall Street elite. He went there to stand alongside of garbage collectors 
We're talking about Martin Luther King. You know, doesn't he have a better place to be? No, he would say, no, I don't have any better place to be. In fact, when he preached on this message, he had this really interesting line. He said, the thing that distinguished the Samaritan from these other religious leaders, the religious leaders said, if I stop, what will it do to me? Martin Luther said, the the good Samaritan asked the question, if I don't stop, what will happen to him? And that's the question Martin Luther asked of himself. If I don't go, what will happen to them? That's what God is desirous of in terms of our attitude and our spirit. When I say the Lord will build his body, he's not just going to build it on programs. He's not just going to build it because we wisely utilize our resources, although we should. He's going to build his congregation on hearts that are connected to his. He's going to build it on people who value the things he values. He's going to build it on individuals who are willing to make the sacrifice and ask the question, if I don't get involved, if I don't stop, what will happen to them? If I don't Share my faith. What will happen to them? If I don't visit the sick, what will happen to them? If I don't make the phone calls, what will happen to them? They're asking the question of others rather than themselves. And that is what Messiah is going to build his body upon. Good Samaritans, be they Jew or non-Jew. And so when the Good Samaritan comes, check this out how he's described. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, first of all, he didn't ignore the one that was in the road. He saw him, and he focused his attention upon him, and he sought to see what the need might be. He investigated as he looked intently. He didn't just observe. He scrutinized what was before him a man lying in the road. And then what does it say? Not only did he see him, but he was moved with compassion. He cared about the man and the condition he was in. Now check this out. He goes to him and he binds up his wounds. How did he do that? Well, it doesn't tell us what he carried, but if he was carrying stuff, he took his own clothes. Man was stripped, right? So he took his own clothes And he must have took his clothes and ripped them up in order to make bandages to bind his wounds. So he was willing to give up stuff that was important to him. Not only did he do that, but look at this. It says he poured on oil and wine. The word poured means he overwhelmingly, lavishly poured this stuff out. He didn't begrudgingly but he just gave what he had. They used wine in the first century as an antiseptic because of the fermentation. And they used oil in order to soothe, to smooth out the skin so it doesn't get hard and break and callous, but that as the bandage comes around it, it's tolerable. Think of that. This guy didn't just pick the guy up and start. He took care of him to the best of his ability right there and then. And then it says he put him on his beast. We don't know what kind of beast. Was it a horse? Was it a donkey? Was it a camel? Don't know. Maybe they're both right. (laughs) Fiddler on the roof. Anyway, 
puts him on his beast, the donkey, say, in order. Now he's going to walk. And he hurts himself, as it were. And he's going to walk alongside while this man gets a free ride. And then he brings him down. He gets all the way down to Jericho. There's no other inns along the way. He gets finally to his destination, and he brings him to the inn. And when he brings him into the inn, he spends the night with him. Because if you read the text carefully, it says the next day he gave the innkeeper two denarii. So he not only takes care of him, he stays with him. And after he stays with him, the next day he pays him two days' wages for him. So think about this. You know, what did it cost in a small little inn in those days? And what was a day's wage worth? Perhaps this was like one-thirtieth, maybe, of his income for that day. One-thirtieth of it. Which means that he was providing for this man up to two months of lodging in this inn in order to get better. And then he tells the man, listen, it's an open tab. Spend whatever you need to take care of this guy, and the next time I come back, I'll pay for it. I mean, that's a scary thing. Okay, you know, whatever. You have contractors come to your house, tell them, yeah, whatever it costs to fix, just fix it, okay, you know. Uh, 20 grand, what? You were just fixing my faucet. What happened, you know? He said, whatever it costs, take care of this guy. And he does. And then he asks the question. So which one, this interesting question, which one was a neighbor to him? Remember, the question is not which he had asked. The scribe asked, if I'm the love of my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? That's not the question Yeshua is answering. He's not saying, who is your neighbor? He's answering the question, what kind of a neighbor are you? That's the question he's answering. In other words, everybody is our neighbor, but the question is, what kind of a neighbor are you to them? And that's what it means, Yeshua is telling us, to love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, is there anyone who would ever do this for somebody else? You know, generally, probably not too many. But on another level, we all do this, right? We all do it for ourselves. I mean, it, whatever it, I just went to the hospital, right? I didn't think twice about, can I really afford this or not? Just go. You know, if I got to take out a loan on it, I take out a loan. If I got to charge it, I charge it. And, not, and I don't. I'm taken care of, so please don't worry. I'm not saying it that way at all. But what I'm saying is we don't think twice about it. You know, if it was somebody else, we'd say, oh, who's going to pay for that? How are we going to take care of that? How are we going to get there? What am I going to do? But if it's you, you do that all the time. You do whatever it takes to take care of yourself. And I do whatever it takes to take care of me. Yeshua is saying that's what you need to be like towards others. And if we are, then we're the kinds of neighbors God wants us to be. And if we are, then we will be the kinds of people the Lord will build his congregation Upon. So these are challenging words, no doubt, for all of us, but they are also encouraging words. They're encouraging words because right after Luke chapter 10, and by the way, this is kind of interesting just for the sake of argument. If you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it's there 
that the disciples go through Samaria, and when they go through Samaria, they don't provide any place for Messiah, and James and John say, should we call down fire on them in judgment? So it's very interesting. Yeshua uses the illustration of a good Samaritan, and it's got to be in response to some degree to that. But I made this point last week, and I'll just bring this passage again to... um, to our attention. But in Luke chapter 11, the very next chapter, when Messiah talks about the Lord's Prayer, he concludes by saying, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he says, what father among you? Remember, the the story was that of a friend coming to a friend. But then he changes it. And he says, but not what friend among you, but what father among you? If his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. Here it is. But if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father, your heavenly father, give the Holy Spirit to those Who ask him? The question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying, be like that good Samaritan 24-7 every day of your life. And the answer, of course, is we can't do that. Which means there isn't anything we can do in order to inherit eternal life. But there is something God can do to enable us to inherit eternal life. He can give us his spirit to open our hearts that we might know him and respond to him. If we ask, seek, and knock. And I was thinking about this. That which we ask for is that which we feel there is a need for. That which we seek is that which we place our faith in as the thing that will meet our need. And that which we knock for is that which we long for. I kept thinking, when I go to a person's home and I knock, I just knock nice. But you know that when, hey, I got to get in, you start banging. And I started thinking about that. Ask, seek, and knock. The things you ask for are the things you perceive as your need. And the things you seek are the things you think will meet that need. And the thing you knock for is the thing that you feel is incredibly necessary because you're not giving up. What Messiah is telling us is the thing that we ought to be asking for and have the need for is his spirit, which is another way of saying life that only he can give himself. And that which we ought to place our faith in to solve our needs, that which we ought to seek is the spirit of God, God himself. And that which ought to be the thing we knock down the house for that we consider most important is the Spirit of God who is God coming to us. That's what the Good Samaritan was illustrating. Such great love for God that I will serve others 
the way God looks to minister to us. If God's going to build in your life and in mine, we have to be like that. But not on our own merit, because we can't do it. But by asking, seeking, and knocking for the Spirit of God who can enable us to do that. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful word that you've presented to me in preparation and now in delivery and presented to us all. Thank you, Lord, for this, the voice of your spirit who is speaking to us through your word that has been presented. May we all respond to it. For some, it's a response in which we must say, Lord, help me to ask, seek, and knock because I'm not doing it enough. Or, Lord, it is, Father, may my attention be on the right thing, which is your spirit and nothing less, for nothing less will satisfy. And maybe it's a need to surrender ourselves to that which you have told us is most important the receiving of yourself by means of your spirit. So, Father, we praise you, we glorify you, and we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us this day. Thank you for your word that is living and active and can transform and save. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.